Welcome back to our discussion on Christians in the workplace and developing a biblical theology of work by thinking about human history kind of as a play with four acts. In the last episode, we talked about Act 1, how we were created by God to work, and that work was given as a good gift by God in the garden from before the fall. However, in Act 2, we talked about the fall and how since that time we've been plagued with temptations to use work to glorify ourselves rather than God. As we said in the last episode, we've lost work as worship of God, and instead we see it as worship of ourselves. And in this episode, we're picking up on Act 3, seeing God's gracious plans to redeem. And it's here in this kind of third act where we fast forward all the way to the New Testament and consider how God became man. As the eternal God the Son, Jesus, laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time, putting on flesh and bone and being born in our likeness, made in every respect like us except without a sinful nature. Now, I could preach a 51-minute sermon on this, but I just did a couple of weeks ago in our Miracles series. So if you're curious about a little bit more of that, be sure to check that out. But we know from reading God's Word that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and his earthly adoptive father, Joseph, was a carpenter. And presumably, Jesus learned and took up that occupation as well. We're not a thousand percent sure, but we would assume that this pretty much what he did, up until the day came for him to take up the work for which he came. When his cousin, John the Baptist, saw him and declared, John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And this was Christ's true work, to be the Redeemer, to pay the penalty for our sin through his substitutionary death on the cross, and to rise bodily from the dead, so that all who would repent, turn away from sin and the worship of false gods who can never save us from the wrath of the Father which we have earned and deserved, and who have believed upon Jesus his perfect life and substitutionary death in their place, can be forgiven of their sins, redeemed from the curse. And he did it. At John chapter 17, Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth, he's talking to God the Father, by completing the work you gave me to do. Then in John 19 verse 30, he says, it is finished. And it's, it's popular in some Christian circles these days to talk about redeeming culture. I don't know if you've been around any of those conversations. Redeeming work in the workplace, redeeming our drive to work, or you know those kind of conversations. And, and it's entirely understandable because redemption is what Christ came to do, and redemption changes everything. But we'll never understand the story of work correctly unless we understand that while people are redeemed, work is not Right, let me say that again. That's important. While people are redeemed by Jesus, as they put their faith and trust in Jesus, we are redeemed. We are transformed. We are bought out of our dominion of darkness. We're transferred into the kingdom of his, of his light by mysterious work of God the Spirit, giving us faith to trust and believe upon Jesus. We are redeemed. Work, brothers and sisters, is not. 
Christians and non-Christians alike, work remains toilsome for all of us. It remains futile as well, and it remains compulsory, the things we talked about in the last episode. So what difference then does our redemption make for the story of work, right? It doesn't change the whole play, but it changes us, the actors in the play, and that change is crucial. First, redeemed people repent of idolatrous attitudes towards work because their identity is no longer in work, but rather in Christ. Listen to Paul work through this idea in Colossians chapter three. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, brothers and sisters, the gospel changes what our hearts are set on because our identity and security, they are now found in Jesus. Later in that chapter, Paul applies this directly to the world of work. He starts in verse 22 and says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are served. Oh, man. See, the gospel gospel doesn't change the conditions of your work. It changes the condition of your heart. In treating our work as a means of Honoring and working for Jesus allows us freedom to work really hard, diligently, and to work well, right? Not half-hearted, disinterested work, which is so common in our workplaces, but rather wholehearted, diligent working. Not just seeming to work diligently when our bosses or clients stop by. And this frees us from finding our identity in our work, as our identity is in Jesus, who has clothed us in his righteousness, the fruit of his work. And we are confident that that we will receive an inheritance, right? Not because we've earned it, but because Jesus has earned it. And it's ours by faith. And all this allows us great freedom as Christians from finding our identity in our work. And it also calls us away from work avoidance, believing somehow work is a necessary evil. See, there was a belief early on in Christian history called Gnosticism, which, by the way, is not Christian. (laughs) Gnosticism taught that earthly, bodily things are evil and spiritual things are good. So so things like sex and food and drink and work and sport, any, any bodily things were evil things. And the only good thing was spiritual endeavors. This is what later gave rise to monasteries. Right? Believing you have to leave the everyday world in order to really, genuinely love God and be a good Christian. Everyone else who had a normal job and maybe a wife or a husband or family, or maybe they were single living on purpose with a bunch of other singles trying to love and serve the families of their church. Everyone else who was normal were subpar Christians because they weren't the elite who refrained from bodily activities and gave themselves to spiritual disciplines and mystic practices. And the church rightly deemed this as a heresy. But many Christians still have this Gnostic view, even of their work, that their everyday ordinary work is somehow evil. Maybe they, they wouldn't go that far. <laughs> maybe they would. But maybe it's, it's, less, it's less than 
what pastors and missionaries do with their everyday lives. Pastors and missionaries are the real hero, the Green Beret Christians. But, but you, I mean, maybe your work isn't holy. Their work is definitely holy, but maybe your work is unholy. But brothers and sisters, I, I pray that if nothing else this far into this study has rang true, that, that this will, that your work, your job of helping human flourishing is a godly labor as you work unto the Lord. Which then leads us to this second development. Now second, because you've repented of sin and trusted upon Jesus, redeemed people, get this, once again worship God through their work. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In fact, Paul himself goes back to Genesis to describe the change in the redeemed worker. He says in Ephesians 2.10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And part of this good work is your job, brother and sister. This is a good endeavor that God has given you, a godly endeavor to, to care about human flourishing and to honor him in and through your work. So to sum up this third section then, People are redeemed. We, brother and sister, we have been redeemed. But, but work is not. Not yet. But because we are redeemed, work is no longer about our name, about our glory, about our advancement. It's about Jesus' name and Jesus' glory, which allows us to work diligently as Christians who have been given new hearts and minds. We're free to celebrate the work of Jesus, trusting his work has made us forgiven and freed us from the bondage of sin. And, and so we can, with transformed and renewed hearts, work diligently in our different spheres, helping create human flourishing as a means to glorify and worship Jesus. And all of this now brings us to Act 4, Restoration. I mentioned this a moment ago, but in Romans 8, Paul speaks not of the redemption of work and culture, but of the liberation of creation. He's talking about the new creation when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom upon the earth. Let's, let's look at verse 19 here. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And from reading this, it's clear that Paul had Genesis 3 in mind, right, when he wrote that. Subjected to frustration and futility, the bondage of decay, and that's our world. But the day will come when the conditions of work will change once again. It'll no longer be toilsome. It'll no longer be futile. It'll no longer be compulsory. Instead, there'll be glorious freedom in our work forever and ever and ever. See, brothers and sisters, the end of the story of work is that God is going to make all things new, including our work, our labor. There'll be a world without curse, a world where thorns no longer infest the ground like we sing of at Christmas time. Right? In, in a world where, where there's no more painful toil, freedom, not compulsion, glory, not death. And when that happens, work won't disappear. Why would it? Work came before, it preceded the fall. 
It will outlast it as well. It will be restored, though, to its proper context. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read that for the people of God, we have God's Sabbath rest waiting for us. And that our rest was foreshadowed by the Sabbath day of rest in the promised land, a land of rest. But what does this rest look like? Well, let's listen to Moses describe it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He writes, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you, a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, now that's no picture of life without work. It's, it's a picture of freedom, though, a picture of abundance, See, and there, there's work that has to go into all of that, but it's work that's satisfying and fruitful. And that's what work is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth, of which Israel in Deuteronomy 6 was but a very dim picture, right? It's, there's a glorious freedom in the perfect rest of God to once again use our gifts and talents and creativity and energy to tend the new heavens and the new earth, to know the satisfaction of work well done. And when that happens, not only will work have been restored to its proper context, but work will once again and forevermore be engaged for its proper end, the glory of God. That's the vision of Isaiah 65. This is what he writes, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The formal things will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord. Now, granted, we know there is no, no marriage in heaven. There's no children in heaven. But this is this beautiful picture of rest and work in the coming kingdom. And this vision is fulfilled, actually, in Revelation chapter 21, as the nations bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem, the garden which has become a city, the city of God, where he dwells with his people. Here is the end of the story of work, an end that is really a new beginning. For all of eternity, our work, our creativity, and industry, and labor, it'll bring forth splendor. But that splendor will not be spent on ourselves. It will not be used to magnify our name. The splendor of our work will be to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, if we don't understand the story of work, then our work will be in vain. We'll assume, firstly, either that work is an end in itself, or secondly, we'll be living under the heresy of Gnosticism. We'll, we'll assume that work is evil and ought to be minimized. Or thirdly, we'll believe that work is a god to be worshipped, a way to find our importance and value in this life. And we'll sacrifice everything to this god who promises fulfillment and comfort and identity and demands everything from us, but can't actually provide anything that it promises. And what a terrible way these options are as we try to live out our lives as everyday Christians. Oh, but when we understand the story of work, we understand that the goal of work is to glorify God. And that will change us. And it will change our hearts towards our work. And it will energize our work forever. 
One last thing for this episode. It's important to note that we, as Christians, will fail as we try to honor God with our work. We'll slide into viewing work as evil, becoming Gnostics, and believing that life would be better if we could just devote all of our time to quote-unquote godly work. We'll also view work as maybe a platform to fulfill all of our desires and believe our work can actually produce unending comfort. And it's my hope that, that we would, as a local church trying to honor Jesus and live out our faith in everyday contexts, that when we see the wrong views of work creeping into our lives, when we start to worship work and maybe even worship ourselves in our work, that we would repent of our sin and turn and trust upon Jesus, that we would learn to lean and rest on his finished work instead of busying ourselves trying to prove ourselves or, or find rest and security that can never come through our efforts. I pray that we would be a people who would have a deep trust that we are declared righteous before God by the finished work of Jesus alone. And remember that Jesus was perfectly righteous in our place, that he suffered and died in our place, taking upon himself the penalty of our sin so that we might be forgiven and clothed in his righteousness. And when we sin in regards to our views on work, we can use that as an opportunity to remember the gospel and to trust upon Jesus. Well, thanks for joining us in this episode as well. We have another one dropping here in the next few days where we'll be continuing to talk about how our work is a gracious gift given to us by God. And we will talk about the twin perils of work. So <laughs> looking forward to chatting through that with you all. Mm -hmm.